So we're in this series uh, called God's Unmistakable Voice. Yeah, we're three weeks in. Today we're going to be reading from the book of Amos. And before we go in, I want you to know me a little bit more in that I'm a person who does not like surprises. Do not throw me a surprise birthday party. I'm not going to enjoy it. Um, sorry. I don't like surprises because I like routines. I like knowing what to expect because in my mind, if I can anticipate something, then I can manage it. I've got a handle on things. I don't like change. I don't like turbulence. I like the road to be straight and clear, and I like to come in knowing what to expect. Amen. Thank you, Sarah. The problem with that, though, is that's not how the world works most of the time. Uh, Things are regularly not so straightforward, not so predictable, And in fact, it becomes a problem for me personally, because oftentimes I can get really good at doing something a certain way, but that does not necessarily mean that it's the right way of doing things. I can be doing something, I can be setting up here on a Sunday morning, and I can be doing it a certain way for months on end, and then someone will come in and be like, hey, why don't you do it this other way? I was like, I didn't think of that. So I can get really good at doing something that isn't the right way to live. And then at the same time, sometimes I get so rooted into my routines and the ways that I'm accustomed to doing things that when change is opened up to me or there's a different way of doing things, a different path, sometimes I shy away from it. I don't like change. I like my routines. I like knowing what to expect. I like the systems that I've built. Just as as an example for you, the first time I ever heard about Real Hope Community Church uh, was before it launched. Yeah, Jenny laughs. It was before it launched. It was spring of 2016. I was playing uh, in church band for another church uh, in Sugarland, and I was enjoying it. I was really good. I'd, I was, I'd been going to that church for years, and so I had a good familiar system there. And then a coworker of mine, who's a mutual friend with Ryan and Jenny, uh, told me about this church that was being planted in Richmond, and they were looking for a worship leader. Now, I can look back now, two years later, and realize that this was God opening a door for me to follow in a path that he had intended. But back in spring of 2016, the only thing I could think about was, oh, I don't like the sound of this. This sounds unfamiliar. This sounds uncomfortable. This sounds like it's pushing me out of my bubble that I'm very safe and secure in. And so when I exchanged text messages with Ryan for a little while and we did not meet in person because I was shying away from it, I was trying to find any excuse to say I, shouldn't, I, I really shouldn't pursue this. I tried to find every way to say no and to ignore this opportunity that God had laid in front of me. Now we can look today and see, I mean, how long my resolve lasted, but we'll get back to that story later. Now uh, the reason I'm telling you this story is because we're going through this series called God's Unmistakable Voice. But for me, and I think a lot of times, we could be uncomfortable with the reality that God's voice comes in the form of an interruption or of a disruption to what we are used to and we are comfortable with, with the way that we have made. And so the challenge for us is how do we respond? How do we answer when we hear God's voice? And if you've been with us the past couple weeks, you realize that the minor prophets that the major prophets, this whole section of scripture is all about God extending his voice to his people. It's all about God's call and his people's response. And so we're going to dive into a book written by a man who chose to listen when God called and preach a message to a people who were going to ignore. So turn with me, if you will, to the book of Amos. If you don't know where the book of Amos is, it's right where that uh, arrow is pointing. So just find that arrow in your Bible and you'll be there. Just a little background while you're, while you're flipping through, just to get you up to speed of the lay of the land. Amos is one of the, like I said, the minor prophets. 
and the mi- minor prophets, as well as the major prophets, were basically transcriptions of messages that God was sending to his people through these people, through these men called prophets. Uh, they had uh, existed throughout Israel's history, and they were the way, they were God's conduits for his voice to deliver messages and updates to his people, his way of instructing them. Uh, they're not called minor prophets because they're God's B team or the little league. Uh, they are just shorter in length than the major prophets. Um, I'm sure many of y'all are hoping that this message is minor prophet length instead of major prophets. Sorry if I disappoint you for that. Um, and Amos in particular was a man uh, from the region of Judah. And we actually have a map here of Judah as well as Israel. Judah is this section here in the south. Israel is this section in the north. Uh, Judah was from the south, and his name actually means burden bearer. His name means burden bearer because he was tasked with carrying the burden of a hard message to the people of God. He was taken with, he was tasked with speaking on God's behalf during a period when um, God's people were split into two regions right here, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. They were at odds with each other, and so they split into two sections. So the people of God were divided, and Amos was from Judah in the south. And so he was tasked with leaving his home, leaving his normal, traveling north up to Israel to deliver a message to people who didn't like him because he was from the south. And so he was likely to be rejected on site, but God still gave him a mission, gave him a message, and we're going to see what that is today. And just a little background on what's going on with Israel. They're actually in a good place at this point in history. We actually have a timeline uh, of this sort of the, the era in which the prophets spoke was from 800s to 400s. And during these four centuries, God sent out uh, prophets to send his message. And Amos is actually here kind of early on. He's actually one of the first uh, prophets in the major and minor prophets section of scripture. And so what's going on in Israel nowadays is that Israel is kind of in a good position. They're not experiencing war. They're not experiencing famine or plague or anything like that. In fact, many in Israel are enjoying a great deal of prosperity, there's a lot of wealth, and they're kind of sitting pretty. And I'm sure we can all say that there is no good time for bad news, but I feel like at this point in time, Israel definitely didn't want to hear something that was disrupting this cozy way of life. But God does just that. So let's look in Amos chapter 1, verse 1 through 5. It begins like this, and I would actually highlight this first line here. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa. The vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah, and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. He said, and I would highlight this right here, the Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. He roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up, and the top of Carmel withers. This is what the Lord says. Highlight this. For three sins of Damascus... Even for four, I will not relent. Because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth, I will send fire on the house of Hazael and consume the fortresses of Ben-Hadad. I will break down the gate of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Aven and the one who holds the scepter in Beth-Eden. The people of Aram will go into exile to Ker, says the Lord. There's a lot there, isn't there? So... Let's walk through that again, piece by piece. That first line that I had you highlight is actually very, very fascinating to me. This is the words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, because it shows that Amos was not a prophet by trade. His day job, he was a shepherd. He was actually also a fig tree farmer. 
He was neither the prophet nor the son of the prophet. He didn't go to prophet school. He wasn't appointed from a young age to be a prophet. He's untrained in what he's doing right now. And Amos is actually the only prophet who tells us that he was never planning on being a prophet. This was all brand new to him too. And the thing is, God pulled Amos up out of his comfortable normality of just being an unassuming shepherd and gave him a new mission and gave him a message to deliver. And therefore, because God interrupted his life, he became a prophet. And God's going to counterpoint or or use Amos as a way to contrast the way that his responsiveness relates to Israel's responsiveness. He's going to contrast Amos to Amos's audience. So let's look further. The message starts out with Amos saying that the Lord roars from Zion. That basically means that God has the floor. He is speaking loud and clear. The Lord is roaring. I've never known something roared with timidity or with meekness. And when something is roared, I've never known someone not to jolt and look in its direction. He's saying, God is speaking loudly. Pay attention. This is important. And he starts off with this kind of oddball phrase. He says, the Lord... Or it says, for three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent. What does that mean? Well, in Old Testament times, in the writing of Scripture, numbers usually held a certain kind of symbolism to them. So when there's a number listed, that usually means something deeper than face value. In the Scripture, the number three actually means completion or enough. And so four, being one more than three, means that that is excess or surplus or overabundance of something. So where three is enough, four is, is plenty or maybe even too much. So using the context of sin here, God is basically saying, look, three sins would have been enough. It would have been bad enough going on doing these three wrong things. But you just had to take it to the next level, didn't you? You had to go the extra mile and just commit one more sin that's basically saying, this is the straw that broke the camel's back. If you had gone on doing what you were doing, that would have been bad enough, but you just had to take it one further before describing a very thorough form of judgment and punishment for the sins that they had committed. Now, the interesting thing about this is that Israel doesn't like Damascus, the the region that God is judging in this passage. They hate Damascus. Let's bring the map up again. So we have Israel right here, And north, just right there, is Damascus. It's a neighboring region, and it's a very antagonizing region at that. They had given Israel a lot of problems throughout the years. And so hearing that Damascus is going to be judged so completely and absolutely probably sounds really good to Israel. It was one of Israel's favorite hobbies was hearing how God was going to sweep away their enemies. And so hearing this, you best believe that Amos is starting to attract a crowd, that Israel is wondering, who's this guy from Judah giving us a message of judgment, and then they realize it's a message of judgment from their enemy? Sweet. So they love it. This is good news for them. And in fact, if you go throughout the rest of this chapter, the first chapter, Amos goes and lists off six more regions, neighboring regions, surrounding the area of Israel, saying basically the same thing, saying this sin that right here is the straw that broke the camel's back. Here are your just desserts. Here's your punishment. And I'm sure that Amos was accumulating quite a crowd, a lot of people who loved hearing what he was saying, loved hearing how God is going to sweep the floor with all these enemies of theirs. But then Amos pulls kind of a bait and switch. 
It's almost like all these other seven regions were nothing but clickbait because he's about to change the tone of his entire message in chapter 2, starting at verse 6. It says, This is what the Lord says. Highlight here. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. Highlight this first sentence in verse 9. It says, Yet I destroyed the Amorites before them, though they were tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks. I destroyed their fruit and their roots below. I would highlight all of verse 10. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to give you the land of the Amorites. I also raised up prophets from among your children and Nazarites from among your youths. Is this not true, people of Israel, declares the Lord. I highlight verse 12 here. But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. Now then, I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. The swift will not escape, the strong will not muster their strength, and the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground, the fleet-footed soldier will not get away, and the horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. Ouch. So after getting all their attention, drawing in the crowds with this alluring message, God lays into Israel for their multitude of wrongdoing. He uses that same thing. Three sins would have been bad enough. You had to go and commit four. And he lays into them and judges them more severely than any other region. You see, the prosperity that I mentioned that Israel was enjoying came at a price. It came at the expense of their fellow man. Because the Israelites were exploiting the poor. They were taking away from one another... They were holding each other in debt slavery and selling each other into slavery to others. And they were denying justice for the victims of these crimes. They were not representing them in court. They were not pleading the case of the needy. And that would have been bad enough, God says, but he has to tell them why it's bad. It's like a parent lecturing a child. It says, Israel, you should have known better because they were once the victims of these same injustices. God says, I destroyed the Amorites, your enemies, and they were stronger than you. I led you out of Egypt where you were slaves. You were in captivity. You were victims of injustice, and I pulled you out of it, and I gave you the land of your enemies. So you should know that I do not delight in what you're doing right now. But moreover, he's saying you should know because you're my people, All these other pagan nations, they follow pagan gods, but you know me. I gave you prophets to speak on my behalf so that you could know my voice and follow in it and continue to enjoy all these blessings that I've given to you. But in spite of all that God has done for his people, they grew complacent and they stopped listening. In fact, it's worse than stopping listening. They were actually actively trying to push God's voice out. Like it says, you got your Nazarites drunk, you, got your, you told your prophets not to speak anymore. You tried to shut out my voice from your way of life. Later on in the story, in fact, um, a priest actually comes on the scene from Israel, 
and he had been spreading lies about Amos, telling the king, hey, this guy is saying that you're going to die. You should kick him out. And he goes to Amos and basically says, go back to your own country. Go back to Judah and spread your bad news over there. We don't want to hear it here. And Amos says, look, man, this isn't my message. I'm not a prophet. My dad wasn't a prophet. I didn't practice this. God gave me this message, and he's God, so I'm going to listen. Because the thing is, this was not a new message to Israel. This was not a new situation for them. We said in the timeline, Amos was kind of early on, but he wasn't the first, and he definitely wasn't the last. He was just one person who God said, look, look at the state of my people and tell them that I don't like it. Tell them what I would have them do instead. And this is what God would have them do instead. Let's jump down to Amos chapter 5, starting in verse 4. And we're going to see, after God gives his indictment of the things they've done wrong, what God would instruct his people to do instead. Beginning in verse 4, it says, This is what the Lord says to Israel. Highlight this last line. Seek me and live. Seek me and live. Now highlight these next two. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Highlight that. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba, for Gilgal will surely go into exile, and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. And highlight, highlight the rest of this verse. It says, Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Just a little um, history and geography lesson for you. Uh, God's temple was a dwelling place that he had designed for his people to live in his presence, to live among him, and to worship in close proximity to him so that the people would know that God is with them. The only problem is, for Israel, is that that temple is in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is the capital of Judah. And Israel doesn't like Judah right now. So they definitely don't want to make a journey down south to an enemy region to make their sacrifices to God. So what they did instead is that they decided to build their own holy sites in the city of Bethel and the city of Gilgal, where they would make their sacrifices, where they would worship God. Sounds fine, but the only problem is, is that God didn't tell them to build those things. God didn't make his dwelling place in Bethel or in Gilgal. He made it in the temple. And so where, even though they're making sacrifices and they're recognizing festivals and traditions, it wasn't according to where God's presence was. It was according to where their preference was. It was what was comfortable for them and what didn't push them beyond what they enjoyed doing, what was convenient. So God is saying, don't seek these places. These are things that you've built. Seek me. I'm your giver of life. I'm your deliverer. I'm your God. Seek me where I can be found, where I've told you I can be found. And the reality is that Israel is not seeking God, the giver of all good things. And so as a result, they're not seeking good. Their actions and their injustices naturally followed from a heart that did not want to be near God. And the thing is, it, it ends with, you know, then the Lord God Almighty will be with you just as you say he is. Because in spite of this, in spite of all their wrongdoing, another hobby of Israel's is they love to name drop. They love to point out that they're the people of the one true God, that he called them, that he delivered them, that he established them. He has given them this land. They love playing that favorite card, that they're God's favorite. But here's where he's saying, it's all talk. 
God's saying, look, you say I'm with you, but you don't get it. What you're doing is a charade. And after so long of carrying it on, Amos is warning them that the charade is over. God's not impressed, and he's not going to be ignored. Let's jump down to verse 18, still in chapter 5. He says, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. As though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? Pitch dark without a ray of brightness. And here's, here's why. It says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. And I highlight all of verse 24 here. He says, but let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never failing stream. So this passage, Amos is, is warning Israel about the day of the Lord. Um, and that can kind of fly over our heads. Uh, the day of the Lord is a popular concept that the prophets talked about. Israel was a big fan of it. It's basically alluding to a coming time when God's going to return. He's going to establish his rule and his reign over the world, and he will judge all the people of the world. And Israel loved the day of the Lord because they saw since God is going to win, if we're God's people, we're going to win. They saw it as this long coming victory where God's going to show up and kind of dunk on all their enemy nations. And when he wins, we win. But Amos is warning them, it's not going to play out the way you think because of the way that your hearts have turned away from me. The crosshairs are right on your forehead just as much as they are on any other nation. He says it in this, this funny phrase, it's going to be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. That's, that scene is straight out of Looney Tunes. That's probably the, that's the worst day ever. I think you're running inside from one predator and there's another one just sitting on your couch in the living room. That's, I hate it. But he's saying that Israel's right here in the crosshairs, no matter all the name dropping they're doing, because they don't have a relationship with God. They're just like their enemy nations. And God is, he's saying God is not even receiving all these offerings that you're sending him. He doesn't like your gatherings. He doesn't like your songs. He doesn't like your sacrifices. They're a stench to him. They stink. Because that's not what God wants. What God wants is to see his people acting with justice and righteousness. What is justice and righteousness? I think we can sometimes misunderstand them or they have a bad connotation, especially in terms of God. But justice justice is just right actions. Justice is treating other people the way that God treats them. It means caring for the poor. It means being an advocate for the needy. It means doing right for others just like God has done. It basically means everything that Israel is not doing right now. And righteousness, it doesn't mean self-righteousness. It doesn't mean thinking you're right all the time. It means you are standing in a position in which God has made you right. It means that you are in a right standing and a right relationship with God where nothing stands in between you and him. It's the greatest commandment is that God says you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and you will love your neighbor as yourself. That's righteousness in our relationship to God and justice in the way that we treat others. God is saying, that's what I want from you. I don't want you to keep showing up and clocking in. I want the relationship and I want it to come out of your heart. 
Because God is looking at the heart of his people and seeing that they are far from him and their actions are far from what he would have them do. He's making it clear that this is not the life or the relationship that he intended for them. Before we go any further, I want want us to take a step back and I want to kind of look at this story from 30,000 feet. Um, Because we have, first of all, we have this, this man, this farmer, Amos, wasn't planning on being a prophet, wasn't planning on writing a book for the Bible, but God called him, gave him a new message and a new purpose in life, and he chose to listen and respond. And then on the flip side, you have Israel, God's chosen people, the people that he brought up into existence and established them where they were. He's speaking to them as he has spoken to them for centuries, but they decide to shut him out. And as a result, their hearts are far from him. And and it's kind of, it's not like it is in this book, but the reality is for us today is that same God still speaks to us. Except he hasn't sent a prophet to us. He isn't writing more of the Bible. He's given us a direct line of communication to him better than any prophet, better than any human mediator by the way of giving us his word through the Holy Scriptures and giving us his Holy Spirit to dwell inside of us. As close as anyone could be to anyone else, God has offered to be that close to us. He's promised to dwell with us. He's offered to us this relationship and this proximity where nothing stands in between us and the living God and his voice to guide us and sustain us and supply us with all that we need to walk through this life. Unfortunately, humanity hasn't changed much since Israel's time, and we too can grow complacent. We too can stop listening we too can start trying to shut him out. I think some of us, if we're honest, we've been through seasons. Maybe we're going through a time right now where the voice of God has been hard to discern. The voice of God has not really had much of an impact on my life. In fact, it's a long, been a long time since I can say I've been listening for it or asking to hear it. Because just like Israel, we can forget that it's a relationship that God wants. And when we forget that, all of the other things that we do start losing their luster. They start losing their substance. Our hearts begin to drift to the point where we begin just going through the motions, like Israel, just making sacrifices, just showing up for assemblies, and trying to fulfill a routine that we built that's convenient for us, that upholds us instead of God, but we still think that that's enough to keep us on his good list, you know? So when the day of judgment comes, we have our fire insurance policy, But here we see that God's not impressed. God's not satisfied with that. He's not impressed by how many prayers we can say, how many Bible verses we can recite, how often we come to church, how loud we sing in these songs. And before you hear me wrong, don't stop doing those things. Those are still good and valuable things, but it's for a specific purpose that those things are good and valuable. Because here's what we need to realize and remember about all these things, and it's going to be up to the screen, is the fact that God didn't do all that he's done just to give us chores, but to give us himself. God designed his church. He loves his church. And he's designed and given us prayer and singing songs of praise and his scripture to learn and speak as a way of knowing him more as a way of drawing closer to him and deepening in this relationship that he designed. But he did it so that it would impact our hearts. It would impact our lives. He did it for the sake of relationship. And when we take the relationship out of it, God says the substance is gone. You're just doing things now. 
It's not what I wanted. It would be like, you know, any, any married person in the room can probably testify that you can mow the lawn every week, you can cook dinner every day, but if you don't speak to and listen to your spouse, where's the relationship? It's just a to-do list for nobody. And if you clock into work Monday through Friday, but you've been ignoring emails from your manager for the past three months, I gotta warn you, there's not gonna be another three months. It's not gonna work. That's not how a relationship is sustained. And all the things on your to-do list are empty if it's not out of a desire to draw near to the one who has made a way for you to know them. David puts it this way. David puts this this way to explain that the activities without the heart don't really equal anything. It's in Psalm 51. You don't have to turn there. We'll have it on the screen. Psalm 51 is a song that David wrote and sung to God. It was a confession after his wrongdoing. And he puts it this way in verse 16 and 17. He says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. He's saying it's the heart that God wants. From the heart, pour all the actions that God delights in. And if our heart is far from God, then our actions aren't going to please him. They're not going to draw us near. They're not going to have a substance to them like he's warning Israel here. See, God sent Amos to to preach this message. And like I said, Amos wasn't the first. He definitely wasn't the last. It's a message almost as old as time itself. And it's a message that is still being spoken to us today. To put away with an empty and a phony routine thinking that's going to get us through, to hear the voice of God, to respond to the voice of God by letting it impact us on a heart and a soul level. God says when you let his voice impact you that way, that that right relationship is built. And those just actions that he delights in flow from it. It's an outpouring of his heart so that we become conduits of his voice. We become communicators of this righteous and just God on the earth so other people can know him, other people can be delivered, other people can have a life that he has designed and offered to them according to his great love. And just like with Israel, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter how long or how far we feel we are from him, he is patient and he is passionate to pursue us diligently to pursue the one that he loves. And towards the end of the book, uh, Amos warns Israel what's going to happen if they keep the course they're on. In chapter 8, verse 11, it says this. It says, The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. God is saying, there's a time coming If you stay this course, if you stop listening to my voice, then I'm going to stop speaking. In fact, here's a timeline I want to show you all here. Um, He was actually alluding to a very real period of time in history. It was a 400-year period of silence when there were no prophets, there were no new commandments, there was no revelation from God, no fire in the sky. God was silent, and a lot happens in 400 years. See, it's the rise of Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire, and then the rise of the Roman Empire. During 400 years, Israel's being tossed and turned by all of the circumstances of this world. And they're being conquered without their God. And it's crazy to me to look. In the Old Testament, the prophet period is here, 
Amos was probably about this point in the prophet period. They had a, almost a good 350 years to get their act together. So God is very, very patient, but God is also just and true to his word. So there was this period of silence when God was not speaking and Israel was being tossed and turned. You've got to imagine that they were wondering what they were supposed to be doing, where they stood in this world, and where they stood even more so with God. If he's left them, if he's ever coming back. But Amos ends his message with a promise that after that period, after that period of silence, that famine of God's word, he's going to come back. He's going to come back like never before. He's going to return to his people and restore them to himself forever. And God's method of doing that was by sending his son, Jesus. Jesus, who scripture describes, is the word made flesh. Is the word manifested into real physical being. He sent Jesus, who lived among God's people, came to know them, taught them the things of God, exemplified God, and then sacrificed his life to mend the relationship between God and mankind. And through Jesus, God spoke to his people louder than ever before. Not just with his voice, but with action. As evidence to show how passionately God was seeking after them and is seeking after us here and now. In fact, the Gospel of Luke puts it this way. Jesus says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. In Amos, God is saying, seek me. Through Jesus, God is saying, I am seeking you. Though you have turned from me. Though you have experienced silence and turbulence and you have not come back to me, I have come to you to let you know that my love and my promises still stand. In fact, the book of Hebrews points it out how grand an action, how huge a gesture this was. In the first chapter, you don't have to turn there, it'll be on the screen. It says this, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors, the prophets, at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. See, Jesus is God's way of reaching out in full clarity. And and there's no doubt about what God's heart is through Jesus says the exact representation. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you know me, then you know that God is out to have you, out to love you, and to have this relationship that he designed for you, no matter how long you've been apart from him, no matter how long you've been ignoring him, he still wants you, he still desires you, and treasures this relationship, and still is making a way for you to know him through the sacrifice of Jesus. You know, when I, when I chose to ignore the voice of God, when I chose to ignore the way that he was making by, by raising up this opportunity of real hope for me, um, I kind of got a bite-sized taste of, of what that 400 years of silence must have felt like. Because there's a period of several months where after that, I kind of wrestled with my own complacency. And my cage was being rattled. A lot of the things that I was used to suddenly were called into question. And I was doubting if I was on the right path. I was doubting if, if, if you know, this, this path, this life, was even something God had intended for me, or had, had I been getting it all wrong all along. So I felt lost, I felt turbulent, and I felt so much doubt. But it was then that I realized 
that I was experiencing doubt because I was experiencing things by my own ways, not by God's. And I was so rattled and unsure because I wasn't hearing from him, not because he was being petty, not because God was trying to shut me out or obscure the answers. God doesn't set us up to fail. God sets us up to realize when we are failing in our relationship, when we are turning adrift. And he does this to let us know. He was doing it to let me know that according to my own ways, without him, without his voice, I'm, my actions are empty and I'm lost and I don't know what to do. But when I realized that, when I realized I hadn't been listening to God and sincerely sought after him, Lord, speak to me again. Give me clarity let me know. Like we sang earlier, we only want to hear your voice. We want to, let me hang on your words and let it change me and what I'm seeking out to do. God came back. I got another call from another mutual friend from the same church. Told me about this church that's planting in Richmond. And for a half hour, I'm listening to him describe it. And he's never listed the name of the church or the name of the pastor or anybody involved with it. But as I'm sitting here listening to him talk about it, I was like, this is the same church. This is the, Message received, God. I realized then that God had already said yes to me coming here before, even when I was saying no. He's like, no, you're going to do it because this is what I said. And so, and so several months later, came on, and here I am, and it's great. And it's not a matter of God calling us into, like, prosperity. I'm not, you know, rolling in dough or anything like that from being here. It's not about a physical, tangible prosperity like what Israel was valuing. It was God's way of saying, look, here's how you pursue me. Following this path is going to bring you closer to me like you never could have imagined, like you never could have designed, and it has. God has transformed my life the past two years by the way that he has spoken and encouraged me and been patient with me to listen in spite of all the times that I'm uncomfortable with it, in spite of all the times that I say no and try and do things my own way, in spite of all the times I get it wrong, God is still good, patient, and faithful to reach out to the ones that he loves. For me and for all of us. When our heart's desire is to hear and respond to the voice of God and allow it to change our life, our hearts, and our direction, that's when he begins to show himself. Through our actions, through our attitudes. And we walk in his ways because of the relationship that he has made and he has called us to. And sometimes it's difficult. I don't think Amos had a good time leaving his job behind, spending years in this nation that was just not listening. I don't think it was fun. I don't think it tripled his income. But I think he had a comfort in knowing that he was hearing the voice of the living God, that he was walking in step with what God had for him. And this was pulling him closer to the one who is showing himself to him, showing his heart to Amos. And giving him his heart so that Amos could see how, how Amos could see the situation that Israel was in. Amos could start to feel the way that God felt and look at things the way God looked at things. It was transforming him because he listened to the voice of God. So my challenge for us today is just a couple questions. And I want us to be very honest as we ask these questions. You don't have to answer me or anything, but take these questions to yourself and with God. The first is this. Am I trying to hear and follow God's voice or am I trying to shut it out? Hearing and following God's voice means that I, I'm, I'm rooted in his word. I'm reading the scriptures that he has given to me, and I'm asking his spirit to impact me with that, impact me with his voice in the way that he speaks today. 
And the second question is this, am I seeking God's presence or my preference? Am I trying to do things in a way where the heart of God shines out through my actions, where I'm in a right relationship with him and I can be confident there's nothing standing in between us And from that, my actions are leading me to love others the way that God has loved others, the way that God has loved me. Or am I doing it according to a way that is comfortable, that doesn't push me, that doesn't change me, a way that agrees with my every inclination? I want you to ask God for answers on this because I think these are very important things for our relationship with Him. And our relationship with Him is something that He values very highly. It's what He sent His Son to die for to save us from what was standing in between us, to save us from that coming judgment so that we could know him and be close to him and walk in a better way than our routines. And as we ask these questions, as we explore our own hearts in this, no matter what, I want, I want us to realize that he's not cast us aside. The 400 years of silence is over. God sent his son and he is speaking to us here and now and he does not despise us no matter where our relationship has been or is or how long it's been there, he is still speaking in that unmistakable voice and he is still reaching out with his unending love, offering us this wonderful relationship and life. The question is, will we listen? Will we respond?